Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. In today's episode, we're discussing the unprecedented global migration crisis. Croc Institute Executive Director Aaron Corcoran sits down to talk with Diane Desierto, Associate Professor of Human Rights Law and Global Affairs at Notre Dame's Keough School, and Corey Smith, an expert on U.S. immigration policy and refugee issues. Welcome to the CrocCast. I'm Erin Corcoran, the Executive Director of the Croc Institute, and much of my research and scholarship focuses on refugee and asylum law and international human rights. As forced migration continues to rise globally, many nation states have expressed fatigue and even outright resistance to providing asylum to individuals fleeing persecution and harm. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, there are approximately 70.8 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. This includes 41.3 million internally displaced persons, that is, individuals who are forced to leave their homes but seek safety within their countries elsewhere, and 25.9 million refugees and 3.5 million asylum seekers. Nation states have erected more barriers to entry through safe third country agreements and other bilateral agreements. States have also created additional barriers that make accessing protection more onerous for vulnerable populations. Such practices include detention, family separation, interdiction, constructing physical barriers along the borders, significant delays in processing claims, and limiting eligibility for protection. These measures are often taken when a particular state experiences significant burdens in providing protection to mass influxes of individuals seeking such protection. In addition, the political and economic realities facing host countries have changed significantly since the drafting of the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees and its subsequent 1967 Protocol. Moreover, the underlying causes of forced migration have expanded to include climate change and human trafficking. Today, I'm here with Diane DiCierto, Associate Professor of Human Rights Law and Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, and Corey Smith, a national policy expert in U.S. immigration and refugees, with a particular focus on unaccompanied children seeking protection. And they're here to discuss what is now the highest level of forced displacement on record and explore some possible solutions in the U.S. and beyond. Thank you for being here today. So, Diane, as we look at global migration patterns and record numbers of displaced persons, can you talk a little bit about the global factors exacerbating these trends, including climate change? Thank you, Erin. So the factors that exacerbate migration, one is also the ease by which there's maritime connectivity. So much of migration is facilitated by ease of access and lack of regulation at ports, particularly for human trafficking purposes. But it's also not what was anticipated in 1951 when the Convention on on Refugees was passed, because much of what's causing displacements are also economic crises, the urgent human rights situations ensuing from economic crises that cause people to seek a better life elsewhere, the particular grave urgency, especially for persons in small, low-lying islands who face actual existential threats of rising sea levels that force them to try and seek a home somewhere else. These are environmental causes and economic causes that they were nowhere contemplated in any other time than today. Great. Thank you. Corey, more specifically, can you tell us a little bit about who is seeking protection here in the United States? And I'm thinking particularly those attempting to enter on the southern border. Uh, Thank you, Aaron. Sure. I think that what has changed in the profile of the individuals 
that are seeking protection at the border. Once it was largely single males, particularly from Mexico, the profile has changed significantly where we're seeing a lot of families and children, particularly unaccompanied children, that being from the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is the countries of Honduras, Guatemala, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Diane, can you talk about the basic international protections refugee and asylum seekers are currently guaranteed under international law? So when we think about their basic protections, they there's a specific protection that's guaranteed to refugees and asylum seekers that's created by the Refugee Convention relating to the status of refugees and its 1967 protocol. But intersecting those particular protections under that convention is the ongoing application of international human rights law, which is not citizenship dependent. So first and foremost, when we take a look at the basic protections in Refugee Convention, one of the first things that cannot be done is a principle called the prohibition against non-refoulement, meaning any state has the obligation to accept refugees into their borders and cannot repatriate them to places where they have come from, especially when there's fear of political persecution. The narrow definition of refugees is what makes this difficult because refugees, by definition in the convention, are limited to persons who are who fear or experience the threat of political persecution on the grounds of religion, race, nationality. And they are not, the grounds are quite specific in the 51 Convention. Now, human rights law would say that the protections that we have in the International Covenant on civil and political rights, on economic, social, cultural rights, on the Convention on the Rights of the Child, on the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, all of these apply to any person, to conduct by any state towards any person. And so the moment a person enters one's borders, granted, the prohibition against non-refoulement is there, but as to the treatment that is expected for refugees, they should not be below the standard of what international human rights law guarantees. Great. Thank you very much. So, Corey, can you talk a little bit about the treatment the U.S. government has been with individuals who have been seeking protection here in the United States? Sure. I think in the past several years, particularly under the Trump administration, we've seen a policy that's been largely focused on really cruel and draconian policies, um, a policy that is set on deterrence. And, um, you know, the most extreme example we saw was last summer, the policy of family separation after zero tolerance. That policy was later at least technically ended. I think we've seen family separations continue, and that's also resulted in a greater number of uh, family detention cases. So that was an extreme example. We've also seen the narrowing of the definition of asylum. Um, The attorney general had a ruling that would make it uh, hard or or impossible for women and girls fleeing gender-based violence to seek asylum and protection in the United States. Uh, We saw a policy of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is at Health and Human Services, which is responsible for the care and custody of unaccompanied children um, and child welfare. They began sharing information with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which, of course, led to sponsors which come forward to take uh, custody and care of the children at no government expense to not come forward because the overwhelming majority are without status. And so you had an expansion of children being held longer in more restrictive settings. Uh, Sponsors were afraid to come forward. You've also seen the circle expanded from a lot of these policies to the border itself, um, the Remain in Mexico policy, um, having individuals that have 
nothing, extremely vulnerable, being required to be at the U.S. border on the Mexico side for the duration of their court proceeding, which, of course, when you have people with nothing, extremely vulnerable, are subject to all sorts of dangers from exploitation, uh, human trafficking, smugglers. You've also seen the U.S. government, because they've been unable to change some of the policies legislatively in the House and Senate, uh, both with the House uh, being uh, democratically controlled now and them unable to get the 60-vote threshold in the Senate, they've focused on Mexico and and Guatemala in particular. Um, A recent safe third country um, agreement with the outgoing president, Guatemala, which would require individuals basically to seek asylum in Guatemala, seek protection, and, and would not be eligible if they came to the U.S. border of course, Guatemala is neither safe nor secure, and uh, the individuals fleeing uh, have a, a, a real problem of Guatemala not having a functioning asylum system, not having the capacity or the resources. Uh, they've also sought similar agreements that haven't uh, been successful with Mexico. You know, this is a kind of a one-two solution to prohibit people from Honduras and El Salvador uh, from seeking asylum because they had to do it in Guatemala and then Guatemalans in Mexico. And so it's been a very draconian and cruel policy. And of course, what we've seen too is that the numbers have continued to not only stay the same, but actually increase. And so the real problems, the root causes in the home countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, uh, pervasive corruption, gang violence, sex and gender-based violence have not been addressed. And uh, the reality is that unless root causes are addressed with you know significant U.S. foreign assistance, the numbers will continue because the calculation for families and, and parents is simple. It's more dangerous to stay than to take the danger of the journey to the U.S. border and all the obstacles and deterrence they face on the U.S. border. So that's uh, an example of uh, a variety of both policies from uh, the Trump administration and also, you know, attempts. I guess the other thing I should mention, there's been numerous attempts in the House and Senate in Congress to roll back the due process protections for unaccompanied children. Those are in a 2008 Trafficking Victim Protection Act, which ironically was passed unanimously in the House and Senate in 2008. These require uh, protections in child welfare expertise and, and certain screening by agencies like the Office of Refugee Resettlement instead of Homeland Security because they have child welfare expertise. There's also been an attempt to go after the Flores Settlement Agreement, which is a legal agreement that has uh, been in place for decades now uh, that is in regards to the care and custody of the detention of families and children. Great. Thank you. And Diane, can you help sort of situate what's going on in the United States more in a global context? Is this an anomaly? How are other states treating refugee and migration flows currently? Well, I think the scale and the scope in which the United States is doing this is unprecedented because it's not just making status determinations that are qualitatively quite different, but they're also looking at farther policies to prevent people from even getting to the border. Italy has to a certain extent tried to do this, particularly with migrants that come by sea. So even with maritime protections, the first rule in maritime protection is search and rescue. Even with persons in in distress, what's happened over the last couple of years is that Italian border authorities have themselves refused to grant search and rescue, which is an obligation, a core obligation for all states, even particularly for migrants that they don't want reaching their coast. Germany for quite a long time was not clear about whether or not the rules for status determination would apply and to the extent that especially the refugees that the over 1 million refugees that flew that basically crossed into Germany during Merkel's government 
there was a lack of ambigu- there was a lack of clarity with respect to how they would provide equality of protections, not just access to courts, but also to identity papers, but also to opportunities that are guaranteed under human rights law. But with some pushback from certain sections, particularly the rise of the alt-right party in uh, Germany, there is some pushback to the usual economic benefits also being extended to those who are pending status determination. But I think the U.S. is the only one that's managed to pull all of these into one policy, particularly the child separation policy. It's never been this visible. It's never been this graphic and never been as well documented. And considering that the United States has been for many years the leader against trafficking, has led, State Department has led initiatives all over the world to prevent trafficking, to ensure prevention of inhumane treatment, particularly to vulnerable persons such as children. To have a policy like child separation is contrary to everything that the United States has stood for, at least in migration policy overseas. Um, You talked a little bit about the way in which the current human rights legal regime interplays with the refugee regime, but given some of the the newer challenges that we're seeing globally play out in forced migration, do you think that the current international legal regime is in need of any reform? And if so, what might that reform look like? So I think the consensus worldwide is it is in need of reform. The attempt to try and have this reform is through a non-binding document called the Global Compact for Safe and Orderly Migration. It's non-binding, but it does try to prescribe some best practice guidelines, particularly on cooperation that internalizes international human rights law, to how national authorities would do status determinations, how they would ensure due process guarantees, how they would ensure treatment and processing particularly of asylum seekers other than those who claim political persecution, how that could be done on a basis that's entirely premised on international human rights law. The difficulty is not only is this cooperative agreement that's based on the exchange of information country to country, it's non-binding. So what we have, if we go back to the original structure of the Refugee Convention, the reason why national governments are able to do what they do now is precisely because of two ambiguous phrases in the Refugee Convention. There are provisions in the Refugee Convention that allow or that always subject the refugee or asylum seeker to the rules of national security or public order of a state. And this has been the subject of numerous interpretations in different human rights courts. To what extent does public order require these kinds of restrictions on human rights? To what extent does national security afford this degree of regulatory authority to the point that human rights protections would be set aside? That has always needed clarification. And unfortunately, also in in a world where many states are concerned with with trafficking, with human smuggling in particular, the conventions that look at trafficking, and I'm also looking at regional conventions like ASEAN also passed its own convention against trafficking. The focus is on the criminalization of conduct. So if the person is deemed to have been smuggled, the focus of these conventions is to ensure that the criminal conduct ceases but not that protection is granted. So you've got the Palermo Protocol, which is also about, uh, which is also about human smuggling, 
But it focuses again on the crime and what the state can do about it domestically according to its own rules, but it doesn't go back to the human rights law protections. So if I would look at the current legal regime, what's really needed is for states to take their human rights obligations seriously. And they are treaty obligations and binding obligations, and they should be the premise for how states make their immigration policies. You can't be committing to treaties like the Convention on the Rights of the Child and then say that you're going to have child separation policies at the border. So in addition to sort of making potential changes at a statewide level or international level, for our listeners out there today, um, Corey, could you talk about, for those who are concerned about the topics that we've been discussing, what are things that they might do as an individual to try and affect positive change? Sure. I think that, you know, first of all, to pay close attention to what is going on uh, with the administration and with Congress, the House and Senate. I think it's important for folks not to become overwhelmed or feel that these issues are intractable or become inured to the extreme and kind of draconian policies that have come out of the administration. And I do think there's a moment. We've seen bipartisan support in the House and Senate this summer to address the root causes. Um, In the House, there was a bill passed with the leadership of the Committee of Jurisdiction, the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, That passed the full House and uh, should be taken up in the Senate this fall. Um, It addresses the root causes, uh, the the, the pervasive gang violence, the sex and gender-based violence, the corruption that are real problems. We also know that climate change is a problem as well in places like the Guatemalan Highlands. But those bills are in in the Senate, and I think that uh, there's a real moment and opportunity. There's a Senate bill that um, was passed recently in the House, and that was uh, on a bipartisan basis, the Central American Women and Girls Violence Prevention uh, Act of 2019. Um, that bill number is S1781, and that bill was sponsored by Senator Rubio from Florida, a Republican, and Senator Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, and they are both the respective leaders on Foreign Relations Committee. I think that that bill has a real opportunity. Uh, that bill has also been co-sponsored by a Republican senator in Indiana, for example. And I think that there is a moment here where folks are realizing that we need to address the root causes. Again, this is forced migration. Individuals are coming because of the danger and because their calculation is if they stay, they face violence or death, and they'd rather take the dangerous journey and all the challenges they have at the U.S. border uh, in the hopes of getting protection. And I think the other thing is to really look at supporting in-country processing programs. Those are basically programs that are in-country or in the region that allow individuals not to make the dangerous journey, but to uh, be vetted and seek protection um, in-country. Um, those have been eliminated. There was one called, it was a Central American Miners Program that was eliminated by uh, the Trump administration. It was a modest program and a good program, but I think that is also another solution. And I think just protecting the Trafficking Protection, sorry, Trafficking Victim Protection Act, there will no doubt be repeated attempts to remove the due process protections in that bill and also to protect the Flores legal agreement. But I think the root causes is really important. And if we don't address root causes, we'll be back here at this table again and again as the flow continues. Well, great. Thank you so much, Diane and Corey, for being here with us today. And thank you, listeners out there, for paying attention to this very important issue. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. 
For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.